Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wisdom of Friends podcast. Thank Thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This is a podcast where you get to learn more about your friends and community, their wisdom, their trials and tribulations, timeless insights and their secrets. Now, let's get into the show. Please welcome your host, Cal Aras. Hello, uh, friends. Uh, welcome to another episode of uh, Wisdom of Friends. And in this episode, I had the honor to interview Russell Perkins, a wonderful man and an enlightened being. Russell is the author of many articles and books, including The Impact of the Saint, The Stranger of Galilee, The Sermon on the Mount, and The Universal Spiritual Tradition, and his most recent book, and one of my personal favorites, Stumbling Towards God, The Years with Kirpal. Friends, this is a beautiful book a spiritual memoir that describes Russell's experience with St. Kirpal Singhji and what it is like to know someone whose whole reason for being was to unite the way of the earth with that of the heaven and to be loved by him and to love him back. And uh, this is a great, great book. I hope you uh, enjoy reading this. And in this episode, Russell and I talk about his journey from the early days in New Hampshire, his uh, spiritual quest and his ears with St. Kirpal Singhji. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. So without further ado, let's welcome Russell Perkins. So good morning, uh, Russell. Welcome to the Wisdom of Friends show. I'm really excited that you took the time to be on this program. So one of the ways that we kick off our show, Russell, is by asking our guest a simple yet profound question. And that is, what is your favorite occupation or philosophy that you live by? Uh, you say quotation? Yes. Um, let's see. I, well, the philosophy that I live by, or I say that I try to live by, is... Um, the absolute necessity of searching for truth. And then uh, when we find it or find some part of it, the absolute necessity of living up to what we find. Um, I can't think offhand of a single quotation, although there are certainly plenty that have been, that I've, you know, that I have used or, or hung on to in the course of my life. One of them is Kapal Singh's statement, you never lose anything when you give, uh, which I have found to be true over and over again, although I'm always very reluctant to apply it. There are so many things that various masters have said, you know, not just Kapal and, and Santa Jeb Singh, who, whom I had personal connections with, but... Um, you know, so many others, Ramakrishna and Milarepa and uh, Jesus and <clears throat> so many that I, <clears throat> that it's hard to pinpoint any particular one. No, that's uh, fair enough. And uh, just for the benefit of our listeners here, uh, Russell Perkins uh, has written many books and some of my favorites are The Stranger of Galilee, The Sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, and the Universal Spiritual Tradition, The Impact of a Saint, Meetings with Kirpal Singh and Ajab Singh Maharaj, and then Stumbling Towards God, his latest book, The Years with Kirpal. 
So, uh, Russell, uh, the question that I'm curious about is, where did you, what did your parents do and how did that shape your life? And what I mean by that is, where did you grow up and how would you describe your childhood? Well, um, I grew up until the age of 13. We lived in Beverly, Massachusetts, which is on the Atlantic coast, uh, just north of Boston, near Cape Ann. And uh, it's actually a very, very old city, one of the earliest in America. Um, my father was a a, uh, a worker. Uh, he didn't. He had. He actually took uh, had some business college uh, education, but he worked all his life. Um, as uh, well, he ran when I was young. He ran a bakery truck in Beverly and uh, sold off the bakery door to door in neighborhoods. And then uh, when I was 13, we moved to New Hampshire, the town of Sandrington in central New Hampshire, where I actually ended up living most of my life. And he opened up a store there, which he ran successfully for a number of years until he got sick. And then it became impossible. Um, my mother was not particularly highly educated, but both of my parents were extremely honest people. And I have enormous respect for both of them. Uh, they're both dead now. Um, my mother died uh, a number of years ago from uh, complications of diabetes. Um, but she was tremendous. The things she cared about, the things she thought were important, her priorities, um, she was tremendously influential on me, and she read to me, uh, and, and my sister Helen, who is just two years younger than me, we grew up together, um, and, you know, she just conveyed a sense of trust toward other people, of respect for people, uh, and uh, just a lot of love. And my father, I, I had tremendous respect for his integrity. He was uh, often down and out, he, and sometimes he was prosperous. He was basically a salesman um, by temperament, and he did have uh, some, he got some very highly uh, prestigious jobs in that field. But then he had some terrible setbacks also, and uh, he always maintained his um, his integrity and his general outlook on life throughout. And I admired them both very much. I was probably closer to my mother uh, emotionally, um, but I also had tremendous feelings of love and gratitude to my father. I should mention my maternal grandmother, my mother's mother, uh, loved us very much. Um, there eventually were four of us siblings. I was the firstborn. And uh, she gave me uh, unconditional love. And this was important to me in later life to realize um, uh, what it was like to be loved unconditionally. Because, of course, when I met Kapal Singh and uh, Jeb Singh, uh, they also loved me unconditionally. 
And it's like my grandmother prepared me for that. <coughs> so when I was a kid, I loved to read. That was my main source of enjoyment. And I read everything I could get my hands on, regular books, comic books, um, etc. I go into that somewhat in some of the books that I wrote. Um, and I and the Bible. I was actually loved. We were we went to the Baptist church in Beverly, and I loved it. And uh, I loved everything about it. And I loved reading the Bible. I got one at Sunday school, and it seemed extremely important to me. So. No, that's great. And uh, it sounds like your mother had tremendous influence on you growing up, and she seemed to be uh, your inspiration. And in 1939, you mentioned that when you were four years old, your mother took you to watch the film, The Wizard of Oz, which, which made a profound impression on you. And then uh, at a later point in life, you came to realize what a powerful parable of that home going of the soul that story is all about. So tell us, tell us about that uh, Wizard of Oz experience. That what did that? It left an impression on you. But what what was it like when you watched that film? You know? Oh, golly! I still <coughs> I still remember many aspects of my being there. In many ways, it's my first a consecutive memory. Um, although I remember many things before that, but still, I, you know, I, I remember very clearly how I reacted to certain scenes. She had read me the book before we went to, she loved the Oz stories. We, she only, we had the first two, The Wizard of Oz and The Land of Oz. My father also loved the Oz stories. They had both read them as kids, and, um, she wanted very much to, communicate that to me so she read me the book and then she knew the movie was coming out and then we went to see the movie and of course I had loved the book and I was imbued with the story and I remember my reaction toward many scenes in the movie which didn't although it's very different from the book in many ways uh, it didn't strike me as all that different uh, when I watched it, I think I had a sense of the underlying reality that was there in both in both the book and the movie, which which is why the movie is so successful. I think because it, even though it shifted, um, you know, it, it compressed events, it shifted certain combined characters and things like that, and eliminated some parts of the story. Uh, the fact is that it it um, it understood, the people who made the movie somehow or other understood the essence of the story and that comes across. And I, it, on some level, of course I was four years old, on some level I think that um, I got that even then. Uh, anyway, the, the, of course later on, because I, I continued to love the story even long after I was a child and um, I did um, come to understand why I loved it, uh, although it took me a while to do that. 
So uh, you mentioned about uh, the Wizard of Oz, and, and you were always a spiritual seeker, it seems like, right from your childhood days, because right after that, uh, you know, you were attending Sunday school, and then you were deeply influenced by the Sermon of the Mount, uh, on the Mount. So can you tell us more about that? Well, this was a few years later, and I was about 12 or 13 I was, no, I was older than 12 because it was in New Hampshire. Um, I just decided I had kind of forgotten about the Bible. I got involved in a lot of other things. And uh, one day it just occurred to me to look at the Bible again. And I started reading. I started reading from the New Testament. Um, and I found the Gospel of Matthew, which is the beginning of the New Testament. And I found it extremely interesting. And then, of course, chapter 5, you hit the Sermon on the Mount. And I cannot express clearly enough the impact that that had on me. when I read the whole thing, chapters 5, 6, and 7, and I couldn't believe what I was reading. <clears throat> Even though I, <clears throat> you know, I was considered myself a Christian, probably. <clears throat> And I had been, excuse me, sorry about I had been to uh, church pretty much regularly and uh, so forth. But still, the actual impact of what Jesus actually said in that sermon, I couldn't, I, I found it hard to, to um, correlate that with the way life was lived around me. Um, and, you know, on the, on the civilizational level, the societal level, even the religious level, it's like, this is what it ought to be. And yet it isn't anything like this. And it was, I, 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 the reality of the things that Jesus said in that just, you know, it's like exploded at me. And I hope I've never lost that. Um, and of course, that was, as you mentioned earlier, that was the subject of one of my books, was a, a detailed commentary on that sermon. Yeah, and uh, you also, during that time, uh, you read Walden, is that correct? And that that also had an influence on you. Yeah, I again, I had the same reaction to reading Thoreau. I, I read him a little later in high school. Um, I found this, the book in the library. My parents had a number of books, and they always encouraged me to read, but they were not especially well-read. Um, and a lot of classics we didn't have in the house. But I did find Walden in the high school library, and I started reading it. And it resonated in the same way as the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, <clears throat> Thoreau differs, you know, in his, in his approach and in many ways from Jesus, but... I, I get the same sense of this is the truth and, you know, and people respect and admire this man and yet nobody pays attention or hears what he's really saying. And uh, it, the combination of those two, Walden and the Sermon on the Mount, probably were more responsible than anything else for, you know, the way I thought in my adolescent years. It's, they seemed extremely important, both of them. 
Yeah, no, that's great. That's a good point uh, because certainly uh, there are moments in our lives which influences us and changes the trajectory of our lives. And, and in 1950, when you were 15 years old, Billy Graham came to Boston. So do you recall that moment? Uh, I, I'm sorry again, Kaushal. Please yeah. repeat that. Yeah, in 1950, when you were 15 years old, uh, Billy Graham came to Boston. Uh, yeah, right. Billy Graham came to Boston, and the Boston Globe, for for weeks, he was the headline in the Boston Globe. They gave tremendous publicity to his meeting. And I read them, uh, you know, in... Uh, we, we we got the Globe. Uh, it was the paper that we mainly read, and I, day after day I read that, and I realized this is this is important stuff, you know. And I wanted very much to commit myself uh, to Jesus <coughs> in that way. And I mentioned also at the same time, roughly, I started listening to the old-fashioned revival hour on the radio, <coughs> which was, um, uh, you know, an evangelical Christian program of a kind. I guess <coughs> there are many of them on the radio now, but they weren't then. And I, uh, I loved it. And the gospel music, the singing, the, I still sing some of those songs. They resonate with me. And I like the sermon, too. <clears throat> and I wanted very much to commit myself to Jesus in those ways. And uh, <clears throat> it seemed more real to We were going to a, actually a very good uh, congregational church in Sanderton. And the minister was a very wise man and a very... I actually um, became quite close to him and learned a lot from him uh, and his compassion and his wisdom and all that. But I wanted more than was available there, and I really wanted um, I, the evangelical approach. The answer seemed very appealing to me. And, of course, eventually uh, I did find a church in the area which was like that, and I was converted and was saved, as they say, and became born again, as they say, and uh, was extremely happy about that. And then so, at some point you decided to leave uh, that congregation and go to uh, Boston University to study theater and arts, right? Yes, yes, <laughs> <laughs> I did. Uh, yeah, well, I went to... I was going to be an evangelical minister. That was my plan. I felt called to the ministry, and I went to uh, Gordon College in Boston. Now it's in Beverly, actually, but then it was in Boston. And, um, uh, you know, I uh, it, was, it was not that I didn't like it there. I actually loved it. But I became very uh, aware of problems both theological and psychological with the evangelical worldview during this time. And I I did not like, there were, well, there were two things. The psychological thing was I didn't like relating to people uh, in order to convert them. I felt later on I worked as a door-to-door -door salesman uh, selling encyclopedias. 
And I realized um, that my problem, and I didn't like that either, and I didn't do it very long. Um, my problem was that I did not like meeting people and uh, with the idea in mind of getting them to do something that they didn't necessarily want to do, but I wanted them to do, <clears throat> which is what door-to-door salesmanship is basically is is convincing other people to do something that you want them to do that is not necessarily in their best interests at all. It might be, but it probably isn't if, uh, you know, if because it comes from me rather than them. And the Christian, the evangelical approach to people who are not evangelical Christians is to make them become evangelical Christians to proselytize, as the word is, and I I found that objectionable. And I also had problems with uh, the concept of God as, not, not as it appears in Jesus' own sayings in the gospel, which I thoroughly, have always thoroughly believed and still do. Um, he's talking about the, the Father who loves us and, you know, who forgives us and who came down to forgive us, <clears throat> that, that that I believe in thoroughly and totally. But the way that the, the theological system is set up, uh, I was greatly influenced by the Calvinistic system when I was in college. Uh, the, the predominant intellectual attitude in the college was that of Calvinism, <clears throat> which is, of course, the idea that an all-powerful God decides who he's going to save and who he's going to condemn. And most of the people he's created are doomed to hell because of their own nature. And he, you know, decides to save a few of them. And I had, I had, I at first I thoroughly believed this and then I, I really had problems with it. Um, it did not seem to me consistent. I mean, it's certainly there in the Bible. You can find it there if you look for it, and plenty of people have, including Calvin, of course. But um, it did not seem consistent with other parts of the Bible, especially the 15th chapter of Luke, where um, God cares so much about where the various the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, the prodigal. In each case, the, the the point of the parable is that you lose something, you search for it until you find it, and uh, it means all the world to you to find it. And you know, coming to a, a, a head in the in the story of the prodigal son, and <clears throat> uh, that seemed to me, you know, in many other things that Jesus said also, that seemed to me the true nature of God. And that, um, you know, that he would not send anyone that he created from a finite life into an infinite eternity of torture and, and hell. Or, uh, in some case, some evangelicals believe, uh, just kill them. You know, uh, I, I found that incompatible. And the two things together, the, the, the uh, growing dislike of relating to other people as potential converts only, and uh, the, 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 the idea of worshiping a God 
who was willing to consign most of his children to eternal torture, um, which is you know something that no human parent would consider doing, um, struck me as very impossible to continue believing in. So I left, and and the theater part uh, I had before I was converted in high school, I had been very active in theater, and I loved it, and people said I was good at it, and uh, so I thought I'd give it a shot. And I, it was great, I was there two years at Boston University Theater School, and I loved it, it was great. And, and I'll, I'll get to that here in a second, uh, but I uh, want to take a step back here and ask you that when you now reflect on those words, from the Sermon on the Mount, which is, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For ev- for everyone that asketh, receive it. And then and he that seeketh, find it. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. So when you reflect on those words, Russell, today, what do those words mean to you? Well, they mean, because uh, later on, uh, when I realized, when I was able to articulate <coughs> what was going on within me, uh, those words were, ext- I mean, they summed up the way I felt. And I believed them. I took them seriously. And I began to search. And with the blessing of God and the grace of God, I found and I believe that that's a promise that that Jesus makes that is um, eternally true, and that um, it, you know that truth, absolute truth, truth of God, gospel truth, however you want to call it, does exist, and it's there for the purpose of being found, and the finding of it you know, transfigures and transforms our life as the whole purpose of being on earth. And I think Jesus was pointing to that directly in the sermon. The whole sermon is about this. I mean, it's about priorities and what matters, what really counts, and, you know, how how deeply it goes against the grain of things we take for granted. But in uh, in the case of those verses that you cited, uh, you know, that's the the trajectory that counts. You know, the the thing that is found, that we look for is there to be found, and when we find it, we know it, and it's the whole point of life, the human existence. Human beings, and this is my view based on what I've experienced. But in, in my view, human beings are meant to become conscious children of God. I mean, to be aware of their divine paternity and maternity, that God is their father and mother in a very real sense. This is... This is human destiny and it is what humans were put on earth to accomplish and sometimes we do accomplish it and if we don't accomplish it in one lifetime then you know if that's where 
consciously wanting, we keep on going. And sooner or later, we will find it. I'm a universalist. Uh, Kripal Singh, who was my master and my beloved guru, was a universalist. And universalism has two, you know, two aspects. One is that you believe that uh, God is not partial when it comes to religious truth, that all religions contain truth, and it is possible to find God in any of them. And the other thing is that no human being, in fact, no, no life form, no, no individual in any life form is, you know, is doomed. They're, everyone is going to be saved sooner or later. And I believe both of those things with all my heart. No, that's so beautiful and uh, well stated, Russell. Uh, so I want to kind of go back to the Boston University days here for a second. You know, you studied acting and directing with uh, folks like Alexander Kirkland, Peter Cass, Jose Quintero, and you said you loved it. Tell us about that experience. What was that like studying acting and theater in 1954 at Boston University? Oh, well, it, it was great. For one thing, those guys you mentioned were top-notch. I mean, Jose Quintero was a Broadway, uh, actually off-Broadway director at the time. He was, he ran the Circle in the Square Theater in Greenwich Village. And he was known uh, largely, well, he was famous for his production of Eugene O'Neill's The Iceman Cometh which was, had been a sensation in New York uh, just just before he came to BU. And uh, later he he did The Long Day's Journey Into Night, which tremendous, tremendous play and a tremendous performance that I saw while I was still at BU, although after he had gone back to New York. Um, and it was good. He did a... a a series, uh, he directed three plays by Thornton Wilder, who is one of my favorite authors, uh, three one-act plays, and I I was lucky enough to be cast in one of them. And uh, it was it was great working with him. And Alexander Kirkland had, had, you know, was he'd just been an actor. He'd been in so many things, and he was in some movies, uh, mostly forgotten now, but he was also on Broadway. And he was such a beautiful man, um, very, very gentle and compassionate and very able to bring out from us <coughs> what we needed to do in order to be real on the stage. And, you know, he explained how you find in, when you're playing a part, in order to play that part fully, you find in yourself that which can correspond to the person you're playing. And you you look for it, and you find it. It's there. If it's not there, you, it, usually it means you haven't looked deeply enough because everyone, as they say, the macrocosm is in the microcosm. Mm -hmm. You know, the universe is really within each one of us. <clears throat> but if we can't find it, we can't really do justice to the part. And actors, even actors who don't, um, you know, find this approach, who don't theoretically approach this in that way, this is what they do all the same. They may not realize, but great actors do this, and, uh, and so they become their real. 
And this is tremendous exercise in self-knowledge and in, uh, you know, understanding the other, like uh, when we would do improvisations in theater class, which we often did. Um, you know, your sense of connecting with other people and building on what they were saying and how that connected back with us was very, very illuminating. And I found it extremely helpful later when I, you know, began taking up esoteric points of view uh, and the whole idea that self-knowledge precedes God-knowledge, uh, which is a standard esoteric concept. Um, so I found it extremely helpful in general, and, and definitely it was a part of my search, although I didn't know it at the time. And then at, at that point, didn't you uh, decide to uh, switch to writing and focus on writing? Instead? I, I liked writing. <clears throat> I always thought of myself primarily as a writer, but I I also, <laughs> I was into acting certainly, and I was also into directing. I, I uh, took courses in directing also. Wow. But writing, uh, it's eventually it seemed to me that I, I was okay at acting, but I wasn't good enough to really make it a profession. And, uh, and I just... Uh, you know, I, I was good in some things. I I could pull off certain parts quite well, and others maybe not so good. And it seemed to me writing was where I was really at, where I was really at. Hmm. So uh, moving uh, moving along this journey, in 1957, uh, when you're working as a call orderly at the hospital, you had the moment of clarity, if you will, when you had this... Uh, you had this choice in front of you that there was absolute truth or not. And if it is, you have to find it. And that was that journey that kicked it off for you, wasn't it? Yeah, that was the, that was the turning point of my life. It was New Year's Day, 1957. And I was working, at that time, I was working as an operating room orderly at the New England Baptist Hospital in Boston. I had been there for four years at that point. <laughs> and uh, the orderlies, most of the week we worked in the surgery was going on in the operating room, and we assisted with that and did various things. But we also did things like catheterize and supply oxygen to patients and so forth. And... Um, there always had to be at least one orderly on call, even when nothing else was going on in the hospital. So at night, so at times I worked the 11 to 7 shift, or the 2.30 to 11 shift, etc. But on New Year's Day, everything was shut down, and I was working alone in the operating room. I was on call if, if a catheterization was needed or oxygen was needed. It was my job to do that. And... Um, Otherwise, I had very little to do, and I, I polished the big lights. That was the main thing we did. And uh, everything just came to a head. <laughs> My whole previous life, all the stuff we've been talking about, plus I had been very confused in the weeks just before that with the sense that there was something more. And that, you know, just being a writer 
uh, and hanging out with other writers and artists and so forth, which I had been doing, was not enough. And I was just there alone, and it just came to me very clear. Actually, within it probably happened within a split second, but it it was it was like a, a, a sudden realization that absolute truth existed. But even if it didn't exist, it was worth looking for. <clears throat> because if it existed, the whole point of life would be to find it. And if it didn't exist, then it didn't make any difference what I did anyway, so I might as well uh, look for it and take the, uh, the chance that it did exist. And I, the term absolute was what not God, although I was certainly not against the idea of God, but I didn't, I didn't, and, and I said, when I say I did or I didn't, I, I'm of course applying back now something that happened a long time ago. At the time, uh, it just seemed to me right to think of it in terms of absolute, and that um, it, it like clarified everything. Because if if the absolute was there, then what else would we want to do but, you know, make it a part of our lives? <clears throat> and it was a very, very real thing. And I made the decision at that point to do that. And uh, it colored everything that happened after that, starting immediately. The next day, I ran and things began happening that... <clears throat> precipitated uh, a search that became uh, was became a very specific and very real search for somebody who knew more than I did on this subject. That is, somebody who was closer to the absolute than I was. And uh, that's how it started, was like that. No, that's beautiful. And I want to get to the point where you meet... Uh uh, Kirpal Singh Maharaj for the first time, but I want to paint a s scenery uh, for my audience here. It was 1960s in the United States, in North America. There were a lot of things happening at that time. There was the hippie movement. There was a lot of Indian uh, uh, gurus uh, had come to the U.S. Uh, you had the Maharishi uh, with the Beatles were the fan of. Then you had uh, Paramahansa Yogananda and uh, I'm sure there was Yogi Bhajan at that time, I believe. But but what was it like? How did you get started in that in that quagmire of all these different uh, philosophies from the East coming to the West? And I believe you ran into this book of autobiography of a yogi that really influenced you at that point, did it not? Yeah, it influenced me terribly. Um, the the most of those people you mentioned came along a little later. When I started in the late fifties, uh, none of them were around. Uh, even the Beatles hadn't started yet. They, I mean, they didn't even exist. And um, it was it was a very 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 different um, world from this point of view. There was one bookstore in Boston that carried what you could call esoteric books. They carried Paul Brunton's books and Spensky's books, and I got them all. You know, I, I read them, and they also carried the autobiography of a yogi, 
which once I started reading it, I and my friends, because I wasn't alone, there were a group of us who were searching together, um, we couldn't put it down. I mean, that seemed to us to encapsulate so much of what we were looking for. That's what turned our direction to India in particular, and the idea of a guru, which we had not really... I mean, that was, this was not a thing that was well, that was thought of then. It was not at all something that was on people's minds or in the public air or anything. You see, this was 57, and the year that the Beatles followed the Maharishi to India was 10 years later. Mm. And Yogi Bhajan also uh, was, you know, came over in the mid-60s and so forth. And there was, Mayor Babo existed, and he was known to us, eventually became known to us, because uh, we were sure we were doing all kinds of things, you know, looking theosophical, Rosicrucian. <coughs> we were very drawn to the fourth way of Spensky and Gurdjieff, but we couldn't find anyone at that time that actually taught that. <coughs> We examined spiritualists, you know, mediums and stuff like that. Anybody that seemed to know more than than we did on these kinds of things, we were we were very interested in learning from. But <coughs> Yogananda and the whole concept of the guru disciple relationship, and you know the very, the attitudes that he presented, this this was. This was unique at that time, and um, later, and even when when Kripal Singh came in 1963, which is when I first met him physically, um, even then it was still very unusual to be interested in these things. The whole the whole breaking open of the Indian ideas in America came a few years later. No, that's uh, that's a very good point. And uh, one of the things, and we'll get to uh, uh, you know how you first met Shankar Pal Singh Maharaj, but one of the things that most Westerners uh, have an understanding of holiness, which you really articulated well in your book, is that holiness is going home, which is returning to the source, and then the other aspect of holiness is wholeness, which is becoming the unity we were born to be. And then holiness is like the white light passes through the prism and divides into many colors, like honesty and love. And could you could you talk a little bit more about that? Uh, yeah. Well, that, of course, this was all of this. Uh, you know, we 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 learned slowly, piece by piece. Um, at first, we weren't thinking about being holy. We were thinking about about finding truth. <laughs> I guess it is sort of certainly the same thing, but um, it wasn't necessarily how we saw it at that time. But <clears throat> what you say, of course, is all true. Uh, the different aspects of holiness. And uh, when I and when I met Kripal Singh, uh, you know, this is of course the point of the whole guru disciple relationship and why a guru is so important and why he has to be the real thing is that uh, we learn what holiness is by meeting him or her. And 
um, that's when I first understood all these aspects of holiness that you mentioned um, is uh, <coughs> when I met the master and had some had the opportunity to be around him and to um, uh, get a sense of what he was actually I, the holiness what he was I I got a sense of it almost immediately uh, when I first met him, but you know, I, I gradually, over the years, gradually um, understood more and more about how that worked and so forth. Yeah. But this is the point, you know, he used to say spirituality cannot be taught, cannot be bought, can only be caught, mm. like an infection. And that's the thing, someone who's infected can infect others. And and, and that's that's so beautiful. I love the way you said that. And and also the, the point being about the holiness that I was trying to drive towards was that uh, many people, human beings particularly, uh, you know, they may be flawed or badly flawed in some ways, but if they show us one facet of holiness in practice, they have the power to touch our lives and move us deeply, as you say. Uh, and uh, so the, the really the point is to finding, as Kirpal Singh Maharaj used to say, that uh, in many ways it is easy to find God, but hard to find a perfect man. I'm paraphrasing him. Uh, but uh, so moving on to uh, meeting Kirpal Singh Maharaj for the first time. So how did you hear about it? And when did you meet uh, him? Well, we heard, uh, I heard about him through friends of mine. Uh, I I went through, um, I had a period of, of after several months of intense searching, um, I got involved with other things. I was in love. I had a, a woman that I was very much in love with. And uh, I, I quit my job at the hospital. And I got a, I got a job working as a merchant seaman uh, on a cruise ship out of Boston, um, and I was out of touch. But friends of mine that were searching with me uh, had continued to do it, and they had found a Vedanta group in Boston that was connected with the disciples of Ramakrishna. Uh, who had been, uh, that was after the autobiography of a yogi. I think the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna was probably the most influential book, um, which I loved very much, and, uh, and still do. I, actually, I still read both uh, the autobiography and, and Ramakrishna uh, uh, over and over. Anyway, um, and they told me, they found this Vedanta chapel, and it turned out that the Vedanta people were there um, two nights a week, and there was another group that met two nights a week, uh, they discovered, which was actually the disciples of Kapalsen, because he had been to Boston two years before, and had initiated a number of people and set up um, a group of and it met at this place. 
So they attended, I mean, they went to the meetings at the Vedanta Chapel, and they also um, went to the meetings of the Kripal Singh initiates, and they found uh, that the figure of Kripal was very meaningful to them. And uh, they told me about it, because I had been part of the group, and they thought I had a right to know. <clears throat> and I, I went to the group, <clears throat> and I saw the picture of Kripal, and I heard his words being read at Satsang. And I talked to the people who had met him, and he seemed exactly real to me, exactly what I wanted. And so I attended the meetings and read what was available. In those days, there was very little printed available. Uh, some books about a Salin Singh who had been Kripal's master, and books written by his disciples, but there were very few of those, and they were hard to get. And a um, number of pamphlets that Kripal Singh had written. None of his books were available at that time. And uh, so we went to the meetings, we read what we could, heard the occasional tape recording, and we loved him. He came across, he came through very clearly. And uh, and we took initiation from him. That was actually in 1958. Wow. And when did you actually meet him in person? And what was that experience like? Oh, that was in 1963. When he, we thought about going to India to see him. But in those days, the Western disciples didn't do that. Uh, only a very, very few had ever done it. And uh, so we didn't do it. We didn't. It didn't seem like a realistic thing to us. And um, he came. He came. I was initiated in '58, and he came in '63. So it was about five years. And uh, well, we went. We went. By that time, we had bought the farm in the town of Sandrington my wife and I, that later became St. Bani Ashram. Uh, actually, <laughs> just in a couple of months became St. Bani Ashram. And, uh, and we were holding satsang in San Rinton. <clears throat> very few people came. It was a very small group, but we were doing it. And uh, he flew into Washington on 1st of September, 1963. And we drove down to see him. And we got there, we missed him, we didn't make his arrival at the airport, so we went straight to the house where he was staying, and um, the man, his representative, uh, Mr. Khanna, an Indian gentleman who worked with the embassy in Washington, um, uh, came out and told us that the ministry would be coming out very soon and that we could follow uh, his car over to where Satsang was being held. He was going to give a talk. So we got into our car, and we backed into the driveway opposite the house, and in a few minutes he came out. And we looked across the street, and I saw, I, we saw the most beautiful sight we'd ever seen in our lives. My wife started crying instantly when he came out. Just the way he walked, the way he stood, the way he held his head, 
It was so magnificent, and I, I still remember vividly what it was like seeing him. And I, I understood two things instantly, uh, which which only became developed later on. One was uh, a sense of my own triviality, and I saw. And the other was that went along with that was this is what a human being is supposed to be. And, you know, that was just a one glimpse. But as I got to know him, which happened during 1963 and then trips to India and then later tours and so forth. And, uh, and, and I, it's, at times I worked very closely with him. That never changed. Always it seemed to me this is what a human being is supposed to be. This is the point of human life. This is where we are. We are all headed in this direction. As Kripal used to say, every saint has a past and every sinner a future, which was a very encouraging thought to many of us. Um, and that was what it was like to meet him the first time. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, and, and and we could go more into the interactions with uh, you and Kripal Singh Maharaj over the years, but there was one particular uh, instance when he wrote you a letter. You had made an assumption that he, uh, while he was visiting that he, he didn't want you to be around, but then he wrote you a letter saying, no, that's not true. I really uh, care and uh, deeply about you, and then I want you to... Uh, love you and I, I'm trying to find that letter here but uh, but hey, mother, my question to you is oftentimes we as human beings make certain assumptions and and those assumptions are challenged when we receive a letter like that from the master and uh, so uh, so my question to you is uh, were there any moments during interactions with Kirpal Singh Maharaj that uh, you felt a certain way and then, then later on proven wrong that that's not what uh, what was yeah. actually said or meant. Yeah, well, actually, this is why the title of my book is Stumbling Toward God, because um, <laughs> sometimes I think it should be called Falling Flat on My Face Before God, because this is... Um, it's happened many times, actually. In fact, I think this is what this is what growth consists of: is having a set of opinions that you are totally attached to, and realizing that they're all completely and absolutely wrong. Um, yeah. Well, we we you know, as Kripal used to say, we see things through the smoky glasses that we are wearing, or whatever glasses we are wearing. Often, usually, they're smoky. Um, you know, our ego, our ego, our ego needs, our fears, our desires, all project around. We see through them uh, what's going on, and we make tremendous mistakes. The, the incident that you mentioned, we were following him in 1963, and we, had, um, we were able to do that through a variety of circumstances, but we had two small children at that time. And we drove across country to join him in California. He had, of course, been on the East Coast already, and that's where we had seen him. And 
And it seemed to me that he was displeased with me. And I think he was displeased with me. But, uh, you know, again, that kind of thing <laughs> is extremely subjective. So the master is displeased with us. What does that mean? What You know, instead of, uh, you know, neurotically dwelling on it, we can try to figure out why he might be feeling like that and do something to change it. Anyway, I... Uh, came to the conclusion because I felt he was displeased with me that he didn't want me around and everything that he did and said um, I saw in that light and so I left I went off and I was going to do that I was going to go up to Seattle and see my sister and, and I, I felt like I couldn't do it like it was too much for me like what the master wanted was beyond my my ability to make happen and, uh, yeah, he wrote me a letter. My, my, my wife told me later that she had gone to see him to tell him what I had done. And he wrote the letter that you mentioned. He wrote out by hand right there. And he gave it to her, and she mailed it to me. And I saw her writing on the envelope, and I thought it was from her. And I opened it up. It was from him. And it was the humblest, gentlest, most loving Letter. I mean, I mentioned earlier that that minute in the in the uh, Baptist Hospital operating room was the turning point of my life. But in many ways, reading that particular letter from Kripal was almost equally as much of a turning point. Because at that point, I, as I read that letter, I realized that no matter what, whether he was displeased with me or not, whether I was living fully up to what was expected of me or not, where I wanted to be, where I had to be, where I was supposed to be was with him. And I had made, I had already bought my ticket to Seattle and I went down to the airport. It was easier to do in those days. And I changed my ticket to Houston, which is where he was or was going to be. And I flew to Houston and rejoined my family and Kripal, who was, very happy to see me, and uh, so whatever it was that had been going on was totally gone. And from then on, uh, actually from that point on, the rest of my life, um, nothing like that ever happened again. I did have an incident. There was an incident much later where I felt uh, totally uh, unable to deal with what was happening at the time. And I wrote a friend of mine in India a letter who lived at the ashram in India, a letter that sometimes I felt like just getting on a bus and going as far away as I could. And she gave the letter to the master, and he read that part, and he said, he laughed, and he said, let him run. The farther he runs, the closer he'll get to me. Mm. And I think that's what happened in that, in that incident in 63, that somehow the leaving of him brought me closer to him. And don't ask me how or why that happens, but I think it's the, the story of the prodigal son comes in there, and, uh, you know, it's part of the deal. Yeah, well, the way the God of love relates to his, as William Blake said, eternity is ever in love with the productions of time. And uh, that's certainly, the master is the embodiment of eternity. And he is in love with the 
few uh, other productions of time as we know in in terms of our present existence, not in terms of our ultimate existence, but yep, that's uh, as they say, the distance and absence makes the heart grow fonder. <laughs> Yeah, that also, yeah. Uh, and in Sarbacan, uh, you know, there is this beautiful, beautiful verse that says, whoever seeks the Sadhguru will surely find him, for the Sadhguru is an incarnation eternally present on this earth. And it seems like your quest uh, finally uh, came to fruition after meeting Sankarpal Singh Maharaj. And, and there's so much I want to talk to you about, uh, Russell, but we are pressed for time. We're almost close to an hour here. So uh, before we wrap up, uh, I want to quickly touch base on the Unity Conference that you went to India. And, yes. and, uh, and you mentioned that it was one of the most beautiful experiences that of your life and and funny enough that you were asked to be on the panel of speakers at the last minute isn't that true <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was, a, it was we had um, the conference uh which was a gigantic thing and there were probably 50,000 people at the main meetings uh, possibly more I, it was just enormous um but there was one afternoon when it was split up into four panels, and each panel had, there was a bunch of people that were on it, and they were on different subjects, <clears throat> and one of them was the uh, essential unity of religions. And I had, I was very, I was interested in the panels, and I was planning to, um, to I was trying to figure out which one I would want to go to, or maybe try sampling various ones. And uh, the master's son, Darshan Singh, came up to me and said, come on, you, you have to be at your panel. I said, my panel? What? <laughs> Nobody said, he said, yes, you're on the religions panel and it's meeting in 20 minutes, get to it. And I said, why didn't somebody tell me? I said, Nobody, I haven't prepared anything. Yeah, he didn't. He, he didn't care about that at all. He just said, "Get to that panel." So I went, and uh, you know, there was the Archbishop of Delhi, a Roman Catholic Archbishop of Delhi, wonderful man that I grew to love very much. Uh, Angela Fernandez was his name, and uh, the Governor of the Punjab was there. The Secretary of Health and Family Planning of the Republic of India was there. Uh, Reno Serene, who was the master's, at that time, the master's primary representative in America, was on that panel. And this was, jeez, I'm supposed to be dealing with these guys. I, I really, I, it was something else. And I was one of the final speakers. The Archbishop spoke after me, but everyone else spoke before. And so I had, I had time, and I and I figured out what I was going to say. I thought it through, and it uh, thoughts that I had been having about how the essential unity of religions what united them. And I and I gave a talk, and it was pretty. It worked out well. People liked it. There was some applause at different points, and. Uh, and just, you know, when I finished, I felt so much grace that uh, the Master had made all this possible, that I had not 
because this is how on earth do you, you know, in in this kind of company, how do you find something? How do you come up with something that's going to have any substance at all? And uh, and he made it possible. And it was oh golly, when the when that panel was over, I was so high, I couldn't believe it. It's like I was floating. I was way up above the ground. It was incredible. That's anyway. such a beautiful story. And, uh, of course, uh, it's his grace uh, that definitely played a part. But wouldn't you say that some of those uh, two years of theater and acting improvisation experience at Boston University allowed you to really uh, give that speech at the last minute? Wouldn't that, don't you think that might training have, came handy? It might have connection, yeah, sure. Uh, no, that's such a great point. And then... Uh, one of the things that you also talk about is uh, the defense minister of India, Jagjeevan Ram, was uh, at that uh, conference as well, and and he left an impression on you as well. Was there anything in particular that he said or anything he did that... Uh, uh, yeah, he talked about, well, of course, he was a defense minister, and India had just fought a war um, with Pakistan, the Bangladesh War, it happened just the year before. This, the conference took place in 74, and the the Bangladesh War uh, was in 73. So he had, you know, and he had presided over that, uh, the Indian Army in that war. <coughs> but he, he was so humble when he spoke, and he spoke about how, uh, you know, he, 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 he was a defense minister, and he had to prepare for war and, 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 you know, fight it if it happened. But he felt his main job was to do everything possible to prevent it from happening. And that also it was extremely important that soldiers only fight against soldiers. And he said that he did his very best, and it succeeded. And uh, that is, the army did not molest civilians, did not rape women, did not do any of the things that conquering soldiers often do. And he was proud of them. And he spoke of his soldiers with great affection. But he also spoke about, um, for one thing, I I knew that I had seen him. He had he used to come to Salon Ashram and meet with Kapal Singh, who he loved. And I don't know if he was a disciple, actually, or not, but he, he looked to him for counsel and... Uh, and they knew each other very well. And he was a, a, a uh, Dalit and untouchable. And he had risen to the post of defense minister, which was, to my mind then, it was, uh, and still is, it was extremely impressive, mind-blowing, actually. And he spoke about how, you know, the human race, because he was very aware of the conference, the subject, the unity of man. He spoke about how the human race was one species and that all of the different manifestations, racial, religious, ethnic, whatever, um, did not, at least, did not in the least alter the fact that uh, we were one species and that we were all together. And I, I found this speech very moving, uh, both partly because of what I knew about him and partly because of what he said. And, uh, yeah. 
Well, it's beautiful. And and one of the things uh, before we wrap up, I'm curious, and this is my own personal curiosity, is what's your take on Taoist philosophy and Taoism? Because that's something that I've been reading lately, the Tao Te Ching, and I find so much of uh, oh, yeah. a similarity with the sun, path of the Sant Mat and uh, some of the teachings in the Tao Te Ching. So what's been your experience with that? Yeah, it's a great, great book. And uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, there is, in in Kripal's masterpiece, The Crown of Life, uh, he has a section on Taoism. And, uh, you know, he, he basically says that uh, Lao Tzu was a master, the Tao is the Shabbat, the word, the central fact of Sant Mat, uh, the, the word that created the universe. And, and in fact, when the Gospel of John was translated into Chinese, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The first chapter, the first verse of the Gospel of John in Chinese was translated, in the beginning was the Tao, and the Tao was with God, and the Tao was God. And, um, yeah, the, I think... The book very accurately and very admirably sums up uh, the basic teachings of the masters of all of all traditions. Yeah, it's a wonderful book. Great. And then uh, just to wrap up, uh, I want to kind of ask you in your book, The Impact of Saint, you mentioned that the story is not over, thank God, it continues. And one thing many of us have learned, the grace of God working through the living master is full of surprises. So my question to you, Russell, is what is your what is your current personal and uh, passion project right now? And what are you looking forward to in the next six months to a year from now? Oh, I don't know. Uh, it, like you said, it's full of surprises. And the thing about surprises is usually surprises. <laughs> you don't know what they're coming. Uh, I'm working on, you know, the, the book that you mentioned, the, the last, the latest book, Stumbling Toward God, subtitled The Years with Kripal. Uh, that ends um, in 1974 when Kripal left the body. And I am working, of course, I became, after that, I came to know Santa Jeb Singh um, of Rajasthan, who was Kripal's disciple and who I came to realize through the grace of Kripal and his very strong uh, showing to me that uh, he was Kripal's successor. And uh, I spent uh, 25 years with him and uh, worked with him very closely. And he left the body in 1997 uh, but I'm writing <clears throat> the second volume is my years with a jam. And I hope to do justice to that. I, I, I don't write, you know, it took me, took me nine years to write the first volume. I started in 2008 and it was published in 2017. And I, God knows how long it will take me to write the second. I haven't got very far. I've, I've done some on it, but I, it takes me a long time to get writing done. I have all kinds of, a lot of things slow me down, get in the way, etc. And sometimes I just can't think of exactly how I want to do it, and it 
take some fooling around and sometimes a lot of rewriting to get what I want. But that's my my big project is getting the second volume completed. And beyond that, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm retired. I'm an old guy. Uh, I still, I do conduct satsang uh, twice a month and uh, go on retreats and, and give talks and stuff like that. Um, and we'll continue to do that. And of course, I obviously continue my practice, uh, which is far and away the, the basic uh, the basic anchor of my life. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, for years I lived at Santani Ashram, and even I, then I moved away from it physically, but I was still very much involved with it. Um, now I'm in California, and I still am involved with it. I go back every summer, spend a month there, and um, keep in touch with the people and so forth. And... <clears throat> Um, and I go, I do other things too, although not as many as I used to. I used to travel a great deal and, uh, you know, conduct retreats and give talks. And at one point I, I worked with prisoners. I had a, because Sanchi had initiated, and Kripal also had initiated a number of people in prison. And I did a, through the 1980s, I did a lot of work with prisoners who were the satsangis, some who were satsangis before they went to prison, and many others who were initiated while they were in prison, uh, largely due to the influence of the ones who had come in before them. And I used to do a lot of stuff like that. And of course, I edited the magazines, both Kapals and Sanchis, for many years. and. Uh, published and edited his books and so forth and so on. And I'm, you know, now I'm kind of tired and uh, uh, elderly, and uh, I do much less than I used to. But beyond that, I don't know, you know. And like I said, surprises are surprises. So. Yeah, fair enough. And I just want to acknowledge you, Russell, for a few things here. One, what an incredible journey uh, that you've led, uh, you know, as they say, self-knowledge precedes God knowledge. And you've really shown all of us, the initiates uh, who read your books and are following uh, Sandarjab Singh Maharaj's path and Sant Kripal Singh Maharaj's path as to um, believing in, in, in this, uh, in this quest of spiritual absolute truth. And, and and all the work you've done over the years of compiling all the records of these great masters and and then capturing that in in books uh, with beautiful written prose so that we can relive those wonderful moments it's such a such a great uh, gift to humanity that you've given us so i'm really really grateful and thank you for doing what you do well thank you i <laughs> i, I, I... I that's <laughs> I don't know. I have a hard time figuring out who you're talking about. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, well, I appreciate that. Uh, do appreciate that. Um, I hope it were, I hope my books are worth it, and I hope you know what I've done is help people and so forth. 
Thank you. Uh, this has been really great, Russell. And then, I, and for everybody listening, with that, we'll wrap it up. And if you like what you heard, please share. Don't be shy. Thanks for listening to the Wisdom of Friends show with Carla Ras. If you enjoyed today's show, head over to wisdomoffriends.net to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover our fantastic bonus content. We hope you'll pass along our web address, wisdomoffriends.net, to your friends and colleagues. Be sure to check out our archives section on the website for previous episodes and subscribe on iTunes, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank Thank you. you. This has been a Seven Symphonies production Join us next time for another edition of The Wisdom of Friends.